So I was uh, in Oregon most of the week at a training, and uh, I was telling some of us earlier as we were praying that I didn't, I just didn't want to work this morning. So I asked a good friend of mine, Josh Borges, to come and uh, bring the word to us this morning. And uh, Josh is a good friend. He's a pastor. He's a musician. Um, he's an artist. Uh, he's a philosopher. Uh, he's probably a lot of other things, too. Um, but uh, I'm excited to hear what uh, God has prepared in his heart for us. So um, let's uh, welcome Josh. morning, church. Um, it's good to be here in uh, fellowship with you guys today. Um, when Zach first asked me to fill in for him, he skipped the detail that he would actually be here until um, <laughs> the very end of our conversation after I already accepted. And so I was like, wait, you, you're actually going to be here? Um, which I'm, I'm happy that he's here, but then that means I have to really watch what I say. Uh, Zach's somebody I highly respect as a teacher and uh, so he'll hold me accountable. But um, my, my goal here today uh, is we'll be picking up where you guys have been studying in the book of Matthew. Um, and um, I'm just kind of continuing where you guys have already been. And so I want to try to teach in a way that kind of fits with where you already have been and what you've been going through as a church and a body um, and do my best to kind of fit in so I'm not coming out kind of obtusely and trying to fit in with what God and what, um, what the Holy Spirit's communicating through your leadership here. But just to kind of recap, um, the last two chapters of Matthew have been focusing pretty heavily on miracles, little, little motifs of these little obscure stories of, of Jesus healing or um, do, casting out demons. And sometimes like, if you're like me and you read these things throughout the Gospels, you kind of be like, okay, Jesus healed another person. And then we go on and Jesus healed this person and, and he cast out this demon. But we forget um, that there's an actual person behind this writing it with an intentional purpose. Um, Matthew, the author, um, he, he has a purpose behind what he's communicating, and there's something that we can glean from this. And I was listening to this teaching that Zach did last week, kind of challenging, uh, uh, being challenged with the fact that it's easy to kind of pull in from all the other gospel resources, but if we would have been in the early church, we'd have been sitting there with a the manuscript written purposely from Matthew with his perspective that had an intent and a message that he wanted to communicate. Um, we see the humanness of this author. We see his fingerprints written all over it um, uh, of ways they would communicate, words that they would use that have meaning. Um, as a church, I think you've been going through the idea that Jesus has authority. After teaching the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds marveled that Jesus had authority in his teaching in their own. No one's taught like this. He has authority. He has authority over sickness um, by the miracles he's done. He has authority over the spiritual realms. He even has authority to forgive sins, and this was really challenging. So we just need to remember that uh, this was written by a, a unique person with a unique perspective. And in the midst of the last two chapters, in the midst of all these miracles, he even takes the time to share his own testimony of of how it is he came to Jesus. So we pick up in verse 27, and it says, And Jesus passed from, from there, and two blind, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, 
have mercy on us, son of David. So here it is, Jesus leaving, and it says it passed from there, most likely referring to the previous miracle where he went to a, one of the ruler's house in Israel and where he had raised his daughter from the dead. Remember, the ruler came to him and said, my daughter has died, Lord, would you come? And so they're probably leaving there, walking back, and they're being followed by these two blind men. And what does it say? They followed him and they're crying aloud. Have mercy, have mercy. Now, th- this detail is kind of interesting because they must have been crying pretty loud. We know that Jesus was usually followed by great crowds. So this wouldn't be like you're walking down the street and all of a sudden calls out your name, hey, 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 when everybody stops and looks to see what's going on. But this is in the midst of probably a lot of noise, a lot of people walking around, um, where they continue to cry out, have mercy on a son of David. Maybe it came off as kind of obnoxious, but I don't even know how blind men would have followed Jesus. But this is kind of something to take note of. And And they use this unique phrase, Son of David. Now, I think this is something we need to take a look at because Matthew specifically uses this term, and this is the first time, this is the first mention in the Gospel of Matthew, and he uses this term six different times. Son of David. This would be a messianic term. This is referring to the promise made to King David that a Messiah would come through your lineage. So, This is an open and public recognition and a public statement, Jesus recognizing him as Messiah. Though they might not fully understand what that implies or the implications there, they're stating that. Jesus, son of David. And I think when Matthew uses this, he's he's helping us. He's a Jewish author writing to Jewish people who would really understand what this statement fully meant, the weight and the gravity of this statement. Even today, historically, we celebrate Palm Sunday on on churches today, and they use that statement, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. He makes sure to use that statement. Um, Interestingly enough, I was reading uh, the Gospel of Luke with um, my kids, and we were talking about what is the triumphal entry. We We were talking about what's the idea of Holy Week, and when Luke records it, he uses vocabulary that's kind of unique to Luke um, that really greatly references the beginning of the Christmas story. And it just, it just kind of points out that, hey, this author, why these things were probably said, it greatly highlights something he's trying to communicate. Jesus, the son of David, he's Messiah. And in verse 28... And when they entered the house, so they they enter the house. Jesus doesn't do this in the street, probably the place where Jesus was seen. The blind man come into the house, and Jesus says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? So away from the crowds, they go into the house. Somehow the blind men find their way in to be with Jesus. And Jesus asks them this question, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now, there's probably more dialogue. This is probably just getting right to the point. They probably ask, have mercy on us, heal us. We want to have sight. But Jesus says, do you actually believe that I am able to do this miracle? But if we think about it, they've obviously pursued him up to this point. They've called out, Jesus, son of David, 
have mercy. They've, they've kind of used the, the right terminology. Somehow they managed to follow Jesus and get to him with this idea. If I can just get to Jesus, he would have that. Would, would it not imply by their actions that somehow they already kind of believed that he could do this? This isn't just kind of a, a blind assumption. I don't know, let's go try the, at this guy. But somehow this is already, they've, they've shown action. But I, I think there's something more unique happening here. This is a test of faith. And we see this quite often throughout Scripture. Um, what's one thing that Jesus marveled at? Anybody? There we go. Faith, right? And it's usually, it was usually non-Jewish people. One thing that kind of Jesus marveled at or pointed to and gave recognition to was faith or the lack thereof. Usually with the disciples, it was like, oh, you have little faith. So I think this is kind of fleshing something out, um, this idea of faith. We know from Hebrews 11, 11, 6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please him. This would be God. For without, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So kind of in our lives today, we know that faith is a big deal. Maybe, maybe for some of us, we, we, we go through the motions. We've asked the right things. We petition God. We've even used the correct language. Knowledge him as Messiah. Knowledge him as Lord of all. But maybe we've come to this point where God's asking, man, but do you really believe that I can do this? What you're asking me to do, yes, you've read it, but is, is there something deeper is there a deeper truth within that you actually believe that I am able to, to do what you're asking? Now, I, I know the danger in this is we can say this is a name it and claim it, or how do we deal with the idea of unanswered prayer? But I think faith leads to action. There, there'll be a demonstrable action when we actually believe something. And sometimes it comes to the point where God just wants to test that and further that you, you've done this, but do you actually believe that I am capable of doing this? Yet simultaneously recognizing that sometimes we've gone through hard things in our life where we prayed over things and wrestled with things and yet there has not been an answer. And it might not be the the fact that we do not have enough faith. How do, we, how do we line these things? How do we hold these in tension that's healthy? I think for, to speak towards unanswered prayer is that we have to remember that we have a good father who knows what's best for us. And sometimes that almost even takes more faith to hold on to that fact where in the light of things not happening, that we know that God wants what's best for us. But, but still, when we see that faith is a huge thing, that Jesus talks about it a lot, we need to take note. Because you can't read this book, this Bible, these scriptures, and ignore the major implications of faith. Now, these blind men, they've already demonstrated some level of faith. I think they already have put that into action, and here they are just being tested. Do you believe I am able to do this. And they have the faith to say, yes, Lord, we believe. And Jesus turned to them and he says, verse 29, according to your faith, 
be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his frame throughout all the district. So I think the main point is, when, when we seek God, maybe we're at a point in wrestling something currently, and God's just saying, hey, do you actually believe this? And I would encourage you guys, just examine that. Take it deeper. Are we just going through these motions, going through what we think's right to get the, get the answer? And do we have faith in spite of lack of an answer to trust God and his sovereignty? But Jesus heals these men and says, because of your faith, I will do this for you. Jesus wanted to heal these people. And then he warns them, hey, see that you tell no one of this, but what happens? But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Kind of disobedient to Jesus, right? But he, it says, like, the language here is a stern warning. Don't tell anybody I've done this. And we see this. And a lot of commentators have different ideas of why this would be. Why did he warn these people? Um, could it be that the more his fame spreads, the more openly he's not able to walk around? I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of reasons that I'm not exactly sure it doesn't specifically state why. But as we move on, it says, And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who is mute brought to him, uh, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So when we're looking here, this idea of demonic oppression or demonic possession, uh, it's written about openly enough where it was accepted in culture that this is a real thing. This is how they would view it, where today we might kind of shy away, like, oh, I know that's kind of odd, that's only something we hear in biblical times. But they, they seem to speak so openly about it that we can say, this is a, this is a common thing that happened, it was accepted. Even the idea of the exorcism of this was accepted. But I think the point of this specific miracle um, doesn't seem to be on the details of the miracle, but what does it seem to be on? It's the details of the responses. He doesn't give a whole lot of detail about this specific miracle. See, Jesus has shown his authority by being able to cast out these demons. He's shown his authority over the spiritual realms. But the, this response, we see two, two responses. We see the people juxtaposed with the Pharisees. And what do the people say? Never has anything seen like this. We've never seen anybody with this power, with this authority. Maybe they have seen demons cast out. Maybe they've even seen people healed. But this level, to this level and this level of authority, they haven't seen it, and they've marveled at this. But the Pharisees, what was their response? What says, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So they acknowledge that this happens, but what do you do when you're confronted with the truth of these miracles? 
They didn't deny them. They didn't say, oh, the, the, Jesus faked this. This didn't really happen. But they can't ignore them. can't pretend, oh, that really didn't happen. He, he's using uh, as a trick. But they, they say something entirely different. What is implicit of this statement? What is the implications of what they're actually saying? Jesus uh, says he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So they're acknowledging, hey, yes, he did these miracles, but where did the power come from to do this? This power comes from Satan. What would that mean in this culture if they said, oh, well, he does that by this power? That this power came from Satan, which would be an enemy of God. Um, this makes, it, it discredits as him as who he is, as, as the Messiah, in chapter 12, which you guys will eventually get to, it will even go further into this uh, type of thought where they even push the issue and it gives much more detail about him having uh, the authority and power and by what power he uses to cast out these demons. But his authority is challenged and this marks a new level of rejection as Jesus as a leader. And from here on out, it just gets more intense In verse 35. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw crowds, he had compassion for them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So we have this summary um, of kind of Jesus's ministry, that he went throughout all the cities and villages, and he, he taught in their synagogues, and he proclaimed the gospel, and he healed them. He did acts of mercy. He communicated the gospel message, just kind of um, describing his whole ministry as a whole little synopsis of it. And it says that he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. So did you ever think about it? What, what is the gospel of the kingdom? I'm not sure if you guys have covered this or not somewhat. Um, what we would state as the gospel it, currently today where we sit would be a little bit different in the sense that Jesus hasn't died and he hasn't res been resurrected yet. So, so what is the idea? What would he have proclaimed, though he did tell his disciples that he would be put to death and he would be mocked? So this kingdom idea is, it, it, it's steeply rooted in, in, in Genesis where this promise made that God would once and all break sin. This promise to King David that a Messiah would come through his lineage. And so the people at this time, it was a general expectation that there would be somebody, that Messiah would show up, that he would kick out Rome. They were currently occupied by Rome, and Rome was a cruel nation. And so people were all for a leader showing up on the scene to, to set things right. But when Jesus comes on the scene, the things that he taught, the things that he did went were countercultural to what was predominantly expected of Messiah. 
They weren't expecting that, that, that God has made a way for people, that this was a message of repentance. This was a message of redemption. This is a message of restoration. But when Jesus began to teach, he didn't, he didn't come with authority to kick out the people who currently occupy. But what did he say? Love your enemies. I want you to seek peace that a kingdom that's represented in strength and being weak. Instead of being strong and a dictator, it was a kingdom built on self-sacrifice. And this greatly challenged the common thought of what people predominantly thought Messiah would be. So this was the kingdom, that, that there is forgiveness of sins, that Messiah is coming. One is coming to set things right and to restore and that he would sit on the throne and rule. But, we, but the people back then, and even us today, sometimes we miss it. We, we think it was something different, that it benefited us in a different way, where we had to deal with issues of sin and something much deeper, that we missed maybe the, the bigger plan of what God was actually doing. And it says in verse 36 that Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd that they were leaderless. They had the spiritual leaders, which would be the Pharisees and the scribes, but they were worthless. They had kind of failed the people. From what God intended to do from way back recorded in Genesis, that God would make a way to deal with sin, these leaders have failed to recognize this, even from prophecy. They begin to actually push against this. They begin to deny who this person was that God sent, that it was God himself and human flesh come down and they begin to say, this is not the man, this is not the Messiah. And so in that sense, yes, they, they didn't have a real king in the, in the physical realm and maybe even real leadership, but this goes even beyond just the physical, but also of the spiritual I think uh, the Bible continuously references us being lost like sheep, like the spiritual lostness, and that we needed a, a leader. And in 1 Peter 2, Peter states that we're all like sheep. We're all strain, but we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Not just the physical reality, but the, the deeper realities within that we, we needed that leadership of a Messiah, of a Savior, also, in, in the light of historically where things were, um, Israel had been without a prophet raised up for almost 400 years. From the end of the Old Testament, right when it ends, there's been a gap of nearly 400 years of silence from heaven where God hasn't actually sent a leader until John the Baptist. And John the Baptist shows up on the scene proclaiming that, prepare the way. Let's deal with sin. One's What's coming who's greater than I, and that will be the Messiah. So in that sense, they were also leaderless there. There had been no anointed prophet, but they're looking for the Messiah, the anointed one. And Jesus states this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into this harvest. So we have this idea 
of a harvest. Um, most of us, if we're familiar with the Bible, would be like, oh, that's, that's missions. This harvest deals with people, deals with souls. This isn't a literal harvest of Jesus saying, look, look at the wheat. We need to go harvest the wheat so we can make bread. That's, that's not what's being communicated. And I think if we want to put ourselves in the culture and understand the weight of what's actually being communicated, we need to think about what a harvest actually meant to these people. See, today in our society, um, farming and, and agriculture and harvest might not mean as much as it did at the center of these societies, right? I mean, what do we think? Fridge is empty, where do I go? I'm going to admire because I'm going to go buy what I need. I'm not thinking about when it's in season, if it needed to be picked or anything. You know, if you're a farmer, obviously that would be something different. But, at, but historically, farming in these uh, would be at the center of these societies. It greatly impacted their well-being, their, their flourishing. The rhythms of life of, on these people were, were affected by the harvest. When it's harvest time, the whole culture shifts to go to work to that. This would not be something like, oh yeah, it's harvest time, and not, no one would think anything about it. But even I've spent time living in Thailand, and when it's rice harvest season, people, kids leave school, they go home, and everybody pretty much goes to work to bring in this harvest. It's two weeks. It's time. We got to get it done. We all go to work. If we don't, we don't eat. And that greatly affects society. That has further implications of our well-being. So I think we need to begin to think about this. What did this actually mean when he says there's a harvest of souls? Well, one, when the harvest is ready, how long do you wait to pick it? Jesus says, hey, there are people that are ready for the harvest. Do we just be like, yep, there they are. I'll get to it when I have time. No society would have ever done that. The understanding would have been when harvest, when harvest is in season, we immediately get to work. Your well-being depends on it. You don't put this off. So today, how do we deal with missions? What is our missiology? How, how, we, how we actively do missions? If this statement is for us today, not just the disciples, how, how, do we, how do we look at this? What are we to do with it? Do we just read it and kind of pass by and be like, oh, yep, harvest is ready. That's, that's somebody else's work. But how can we begin to look at this and take it in and respond to it? So I think I'm going to point out four things that I, I see here. Um, but we need to start with the premise of this, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have been born again, you do not get a pass. So if that's everyone in this room, you are without excuse. There's no passes given to this. We have to go with this statement that Matthew, then in Matthew, we call it the Great Commission, where Matthew 28, 19 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. So all of us, this was a, a commandment given to his whole church, all those who would, the conglomerate of believers. 
So if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is your savior, you do not get a pass. But what, what can we do? How do we need to respond to this? How should we take this into our lives today? In verse 36, it says this. This would be the first one. Number one, when he saw the crowds. So number one, I'd say we need to look. We need to see. Do you have the eyes to see what's actually before us? How do you view people? How do you view your neighborhoods? How do you view the workplace? What, what, I mean, what does that mean? A lot of times I go through life and it's just, it's people. They're doing their thing. I have a job. I have a family. I have my own business to, to attend to. But Jesus looked with different eyes. I don't think this is just a general look out. Yep, there's people. But it had a different intent. Look at these people. He saw the crowds. And he saw them through a different lens. Number two, what does it say? This is the second point. He had compassion on them. So we need to look, and then we need to feel something. And Jesus had this great compassion, this idea that it goes beyond just mere intellect, but that something on the deeper heart level begins to move you because of what you've seen. See, this isn't just, oh, I feel sorry for those people. That's the emotion I'm feeling. But this was a real visceral emotion that Jesus had. I was greatly moved. These people are helpless. These people don't have a leader. These people are, are souls that have intrinsic worth, and they are completely lost. So we, we move from just the looking in that head, but we move to the heart where we have to have that compassion. Because if we just are people who are motivated out of intellect, it will lack something greatly, will it not? I do not love my wife because it's intellectually states that I must love her, but there isn't, if there isn't a deep-rooted emotion behind that, it falls short of what it should be in its fullness. So if we are to look and we are to have compassion, not just locally, but I think even globally. Do we read the news and how, does our heart break for the hurt in the world? We see it. We're bombarded by it constantly. If you turn on the news, what do we hear? Not much good news, right? But what lens are we viewing it through? Does it, does it break our hearts to even begin to engage on some other level? We know we can't do something to fix every problem, but does it bother us? Is there compassion for a people who are leaderless, they're lost souls? And thirdly, Jesus wants us to know something. In 37, and he said this to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He wants us to know something about this harvest of souls. There's work to be done. There, there is a harvest. The fact that he's even stating it, look out here. There's something that needs to be done. There's something that needs to be reaped. We need to get to, to work. To be, something needs to be put into action. And the problem here, if we look at it, it's not that there's lack of work or that there's a lack of a harvest. He's not pointing out, hey, there's not much of a harvest or there's an issue with it, but what is the problem that's being stated? 
There's a lack of what? Laborers. There's a lack of people to actually in, engage in this work. There's not a lack of the people who need to hear this message of forgiveness, the message of redemption, the message of the kingdom, but there's a lack of people to actually engage and take that message out. So we need to know, we need to look, we need to feel, we need to know something, that there are people currently right now who need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we need to do. What does it say? Verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the first action is not just to get up and immediately go, but what? Our action is to pray. We, we begin in prayer. God, there's a harvest. Would you send me? I think to whom the prayer is directed greatly states something. It's recognizing that there is a Lord of the harvest. Who are, we, who are we directing this prayer to? The Lord of the harvest, not just to God. Pray to God that he sends these people out, but he uses the terminology, pray to the Lord of this harvest. Recognizing God's ultimately in control of this. This isn't all left to us. Solely our responsibility, where Jesus goes up into heaven after raising from the dead. Like, Here you go. Have fun with this. We'll see you in a few thousand years. No, but God is ultimately in control, though we are the vessels by which this message is carried out. We need to be the willing leaders to step up into this. And we begin by praying. You know, are we willing to actually walk in the fullness of our purpose of what God has saved us from, to not just sit and bask in, in the prerogatives and, and, and the benefits of what he's done for us, but to actually have that compassion to step out and take that and to bend that outwards to people who need to hear this message. And we have a great God who will equip us, but do we begin to pray and actually seek, God, would you send me? And sometimes when we begin to seek God, these people are lost, they're hurting. Sometimes we find our own answer is, is us, right? That the actual answer is God actually sending you. You become part of the solution of your own petition. And in, in the next chapter following, we'll begin to see how Jesus sends things out and the actual outworking of what this begins to look like, where he sends them out with a message and to do these things. And we see as it points back to the miracles and how Jesus has been teaching them through these things, that he had compassion to actually heal the people, that he loved the people. And these little minuets and these little motifs of the miracles were teaching opportunities that he expects us to engage in, that expects us to partake in. So we need to look May we have just the eyes that God has. May we begin to view things through the lens which he views. Um, what would that look like individually? If I asked you a question, it's easy to listen to a message, but if you actually begin to look and then be moved with compassion, where would that immediately hit? 
our homes. You know, start, in, start individualistic. Like, where I am, you guys are all unique in different places. You work different jobs. You live in different neighborhoods. You see a different harvest. How do you begin to engage with that? Would you actually be willing to step before God and petition God, help me to see people the way you see them. Help me to have compassion the way you have compassion on people. And that, that's a hard thing. This is a hard thing actually to teach. Because um, intellectually, I can put these points together, but this is something that also I have to participate in. Otherwise, it's kind of meaningless. And it's, it's, I'm not aware of anybody who's absolutely saying, yep, I'm killing it on this. I mean, is anybody in the room actually would be willing to something like, yep, I'm doing great with this. It's a nice message. Right? But we, we, have, we have a gracious Father who, who, who knows us. He knows our lack of faith. But are we willing to actually begin to engage in that and to see things the way God sees him? To, to step up to our calling and our purpose that he hasn't just called us and saved us so we can just sit around, but he saved us to a greater purpose. Will we be willing to ask God to prick our hearts with compassion? Even, even when we're looking at the news and we're looking at things that happen and the atrocities around the world, are we moved to compassion or, or, or are we just, yep, that bad things happen, life's good here. Have good coffee to drink, have a job. But there's something deeper within a stir. And then after you move from the individual, would you guys, as a, as a church, what does that mean? Yes, this is not a multitude mega church, but there's people here that together, what is the purpose and calling that God has for this church, in this neighborhood, in this city? And would you begin to seek the Lord together for what that means and then actually begin to, to act upon it. It's easy to say, yep, there's, there's people, God sends somebody else. But to actively be willing to be a part of that solution. So as, as we end, um, we're going to sing and we're going to pray and there'll be communion available. And we remember just the price that Jesus paid for us. And we remember that, hey, because of the message that we have heard, we have been saved. And we begin to recognize what that has done for us could we begin to recognize what that means as we begin to bend that out into our communities and our lives in this city and ask, how, how are we a part of that? How can we be a part of that? God, help me to see things the way you see them. Help, help my heart to break for the things that break your heart. So we serve a great God and he so greatly loved all these people that he was willing to come and be brutally beaten, to be mocked for our sakes, set aside the prerogatives of heaven 
for us, that we could hear this message and be saved. And may we be wise stewards of this. Yes, you are covered by the blood of Jesus, but don't squander that. So would you guys pray with me? And Father God, we we recognize, Lord, we fall short probably in so many ways. But God, we thank you that you have loved us, that you have saved us. God, we thank you that the message which we heard that somebody was sent to tell that message to us, and then when we responded, we became partakers, we became your children. God, we thank you for that. We thank you that we are greatly loved, that you are for us, and you have a plan for us. God, help us to see and to feel the way that you feel for actual lost souls. God, help us to respond in a way that brings you glory. Help us to have that confidence and uh, that, that motivation, Jesus. So I pray for this church here, Revelation Church in Coeur d'Alene, that they be greatly used in this city. Equip these people. Begin to raise them and gift them with, with spiritual gifts, with a desire to teach your message, to teach your word, to take the message of the gospel out. Help us to live that, Jesus, in your name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.